Welcome. Here is this past Sunday's sermon from Grant Memorial Church. My name is Cam, I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you have joined us today, whether this is your first Sunday or your 3,001st Sunday here. I believe there's actually a few who have been here more than 3,001, just uh, FYI. Now, just uh, to warm us up this morning, uh, we're going to do a little congregational participation, okay? Uh, Now, what's going to happen is I'm going to begin a jingle, And I want those of you who know the jingle to join in when you know what I'm doing and finish it with me. Does that make sense? Okay, this won't go well if we can't even say okay to the instructions. (laughs) All right, so let's let's give this a shot. And uh, apologies to our newcomers to Canada and some of our next generation. Uh, These may not be shared memories for some of you, but here goes. Give me a break. Give me a break. Break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Okay, all right. Not a bad start. Not a bad start. How about this one? The best part of waking up is... All right, good stuff. Okay, how about this one? Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. All right. How about this one? Uh, for those with more expensive tastes, every kiss begins with... Okay, that one not so good. Not so good. Uh, how about this one? I don't want to grow up. I'm a... It seems like these people know what's going on really well, and everyone else is just, uh, you know... Uh... <laughs> okay, so um, this section, great job. Everyone else, uh, you know, I'm hoping that you knew what I was talking about. You're just a little bit uh, shy this morning. Um, but isn't it amazing, for those of you who, who were able to recall these jingles, isn't it amazing how quickly things like this come to our minds, even when maybe we haven't heard them for a really long time? Right Now, uh, why do you think that so many of us remembered uh, or it triggered these jingles? Why is it that, that useful information hasn't taken their place in our memories Right? How is it that we know how to finish these sentences? Well, I, I think that there's a one-word answer for this, and that word is repetition. I, I, it's clear that, that we didn't hear these jingles just once or twice along the way, right? I, I would contend that these jingles have imprinted in our minds due to hundreds, maybe even thousands of exposures over the years as we've heard them on TV and radio or streaming commercials. Repetition is a powerful thing, and it's not just jingles that this applies to. As a church, we memorize scripture through repetition, right? The more we hear or read or recite a verse, the more likely we are to remember and recall it. Similarly, we can sing song lyrics from our childhood with no problem, even if we haven't heard them in years because of the frequency of play in our past, or we recall expressions from those closest to us simply because we've heard them say that thing so often. As I said before, repetition is a powerful thing. 
Well, this morning, uh, in our study through the Old Testament book of Genesis, we come across a passage of Scripture that seems to be repetitive. And so I invite you to turn with me in your copy of the Scriptures to Genesis chapter 17 as we read that passage. Genesis 17, and we'll start at verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. Then I will make my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come. To be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you now reside as a foreigner I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you. And I will be their God. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that, uh, that you would allow what needs to stand out to stand out so that we leave here changed as a result of encountering your word this morning. Amen. So for those of us who have been here over the past number of weeks, is it just me, or does it seem like we've heard all of this before? Right? Well, we've already read in Genesis 12 about the covenant promise made to Abram that he would be given land a name, and a people, and that he would be blessed. And this was reiterated in Genesis 13, with God pointing out the boundaries of the land that his people, as numerous as the dust, would inherit forever. In Genesis 15, God confirms that this will actually happen, that it will be through a physical son that Abram's descendants would come and that these descendants would live in the land already promised, and God seals the promise through a covenant-making ceremony. And then here in our text today, we see God declare the following. Verse 2, I will make a covenant between you and me. Okay, we've heard that before. Verse 2, your numbers will increase greatly. Uh Uh-huh. Verse 4, I will make you fruitful. You will be blessed. Verse 7, the covenant will be everlasting. Verse 8, you will have many descendants. Verse 8, I will give you the land I have promised. All of which we have heard before multiple times. And so the question we begin with this morning is why the repetition? Why does God, in many ways, say essentially the same thing to Abram here that he's already said multiple times already? Well, the first answer to that question is that we need repetition. We need repetition. Think back to the jingles that we discussed at the beginning. The reason that some of us knew those jingles was because we have heard them multiple times before. If I started to sing a brand new jingle that maybe we had each heard once, how many of us would be able to complete the sentence? Not many, right? It was repetition that imprinted the words on our minds. In the same way that our bodies develop muscle memory by doing the same movements over and over, our minds develop cognitive memories surrounding what is repeated to us. And that is a part of what God is doing. In regards to his promises, he's imprinting them on Abram's mind and in his heart. 
So that Abram would instinctively live within the promises of God, not second-guessing or questioning, questioning them, but being assured of them because they were always at the forefront of his mind. When my kids were little, as soon as they could speak a few words, I taught them a little call and response where I would say, who loves McAllister or who loves Ellington, to which they would immediately reply, dad, right? And for years, I would repeat that, right? I'd pick them up, who loves McAllister, dad, right? Or I'd put, put Ellington to bed, who loves Ellington, dad, right? And the reason I did that is that they would be reminded and involved in the recounting that they were loved by their father, right? And, and the point of the repetition was that, that, that they would internalize this truth. Well, here, a, a part of God's repetition to Abram, the chapter after chapter, is to help Abram internalize the truth that his personal God loved him, cared for him, and called him according to a specific purpose, right? Abram doesn't need to doubt the promises of God or question what he might have heard from God years ago because God won't let him forget as he repeats the promises to him. And in church, this is why it's so important that we surround ourselves with the word of God as well, that we hear what God wants us to know so that we would internalize the truth about God and his love for us. Right? The Bible is full of reminders of God's love and faithfulness, his forgiveness and grace, his sovereignty, and we would do well to heed the repetition so that we can recall it easily whenever we may be tempted to doubt. Which brings us to the second reason for God's repetition here. <clears throat> Abram needed reassurance. Right? Abram needed reassurance. For those of you who were here last week, we witnessed Abram and his wife Sarai take God's promises into their own hands by having Abram sleep with Sarai's slave Hagar in order that she could give birth to Abram's promised son, a.k.a. not a good idea. And while this plan was admittedly appalling, God did bring Abram's first son, Ishmael, out of it. However, it seems as though things went relatively quiet in terms of God communicating with Abram for the next 13 years, leaving Abram likely to wonder if he had fallen out of favor with God due to his actions and mistrust of the promise. We will see this concern of God's rejection in a couple of weeks when Abram appeals to God saying in Genesis 17 to 18, if only Ishmael may live under your blessing. Right? Up until this point, it feels to Abram like the blessing hasn't been extended to Ishmael, leaving him to wonder what will become of the promise. And here in our text this morning, God reminds Abram that nothing has changed. Verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him. Right? God appears to tell Abram that his promises are still valid. God will still do as he said. He reminds Abram that the promises never depended on Abram in the first place, that he, God, would be faithful. In this repetition, God is saying to Abram that he hasn't given up on him which is an important reminder for some of us here today as well. I don't know what your story is, where you are in relation to God, but hear this message today. 
God hasn't given up on you. While it may seem like he's distant or you may feel like you've wandered too far, the truth is that God remains faithful and invites you to be reassured of his love, of his forgiveness, and of his calling in your life. As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8, 38, for anyone who may be uh, tempted to doubt the love of God, says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life Angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height or depth or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And thirdly, we see that God repeats himself in this text in order to expand the original promise. Right? He expands the promise. Well, it seems upon first reading, like God has said all of this before, there's actually a magnification of the promise here. In short, God repeats his promises in order to add to them or enhance them. Look at verse 4 as an example. He says, as for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. What, what do you see here that is different than what we've read in terms of the promises before? This statement of the promise is plural. Did you notice that? God expands the promise from Abram fathering a great nation, singular, which is what we have read up until now, to many nations, plural. And this isn't simply a typo in that one verse. It's accentuated in verse 6. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. Church, this is a big deal. When Abram heard this, he must have done a double take, right? Okay, yeah, I'll be a great nation. Nations? Did you say nations? And did you say kings? Out of my tent community will come kings of nations? Which leads us to ask the question, why the promise grows here? Or what does God mean through this expanding promise? Well, I would suggest that it, God implies two things here. First of all, God is sharing how this will play out biologically. Right? God is telling Abram that Ishmael, the son he has from Hagar the slave, is not the only son he's going to have. Right? He will now be the father of nations, plural, because his children will be plural. Now, Abram doesn't understand this just yet, as we will see later on in the chapter in a couple of weeks. But God is doubling down on the promise that Abram will have a son by a miracle of God and not simply by Abram's personal efforts like we saw last week. And so God is saying that kings... Specifically, the kings of Israel are what come to mind for us, and nations will physically come from his biological offspring. However, there's also a, a spiritual interpretation of this promise, that nations and kings will come from Abram. According to the Apostle Paul, the, this exact promise of nations that we read about here in Genesis 17 means that Gentiles will at some point become Abram's offspring. Look at Romans 4, 16 to 17. And this is a letter written to both Jewish and Gentile Christians. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace 
and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who have the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it's written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. So according to Paul, in this moment, God is giving Abram a glimpse of just what the promise means and that as Revelation 7 tells us, people from every nation, tribe, and tongue would become his spiritual children. That they would, as Romans 11 says, be grafted into Abraham's family through faith in Christ. All right, so here's the explanation simply. Abram would be the father of many nations as people from many nations would be adopted into God's family. So we see that the the promise that we have heard multiple times before has been magnified now. And Abram is learning more himself about what God has had in mind from the start through his repetition and reiteration of the promise. Well, now that we've had the chance to answer why God would repeat much of what he has said in this text, it's important for us also to identify what is fresh in our passage today as well, because not everything we read we have heard before. What is it that God is doing that makes this text significant beyond simply the fact that it's repetitive? What what makes this a noteworthy text on its own? Because make no mistake, Genesis 17 is a significant turning point in the life of Abram and in the Old Testament in general. You see, it's in this chapter where we will see God reveal his equal parts ridiculous and miraculous plan to bring a son to 100-year-old Abram through his 90-year-old wife. It's in this chapter where we will see God turn Abram's people into his very own people, set apart for him, and marked with a physical sign of God's promise. And it's in this chapter where God goes about inviting Abram and Sarai into something so unique, so new, that their very identities need to shift in order to fully embrace what is coming. Now, many of these details we're going to unpack over the next couple of weeks, but it all starts with God's invitation to Abram into something new. So let's walk through this invitation and see the the new things that God presents to Abram at this significant turning point point. The first new thing that God gives Abram here is a new name. Verse 5, no longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. God here changes Abram's name to Abraham. And in kind, for the duration of the series, we will now, we've now turned the corner and we will refer to this man as Abraham. Now, Abraham's old name, Abram, meant exalted father, which as an aside, must have been a cruel name to wear through nearly a century of barrenness, right? But here, God changes it to Abraham, which means the father of many nations, which is in line with what God has done in expanding the promise here. He he will not simply be a father. He will be the father of nations. 
Now, one valid question here is, is why does God change his name? Right? It's not like he changed his name from childless man to father. Right? Why this slight adjustment? What's so important about this action of God? Well, I would suggest three implications of God changing Abraham's name simply beyond the meaning, or beyond simply the meaning of the name itself. First of all, to change the name of someone means ownership, right? You only have the right to name someone or something that belongs to you, right? Does that make sense? You don't go up naming other people's dogs, right? People don't come up and change your child's name, right? Whatever has a name, a child, a dog, a band, a novel, naming rights belong to the, the one who brought it into existence or has ownership rights over it. And so God is in part claiming ownership here over Abraham. He's saying, you are mine and you belong to me. Secondly, to change the name of someone means a change of identity for that person. There's a a reason why so many last names in English are actually professions, right? Baker, Smith, Fisher, Barber, Cook, right? All these names originated because a name identified one with who they were or what they did. And it's also why first name meanings are so important in many cultures, Because a name is an identity as much as simply a title. A name like grace can serve as sort of a prophetic word which invites the individual to live within the calling of their name. This is the the reason why Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter in Matthew 16. Because Jesus wants Peter to live up to the meaning of his name as the rock upon which the church will be built. And so this, this act, God, in this act, God is changing Abraham's identity, right? Not only as his own, but in regards to what God will do through him, namely bringing about nations and a people. And thirdly, to change the name of someone means a change of status for that person. At, at this time in the ancient Near East, When a child was adopted or inherited into a new family, the custom was to give them a brand new name in that moment, in line with that of the family, signifying that they were now a legal heir and carried the same status as the biological children. With the name change came a change in status and position within the family. And Abraham's status changes here as God initiates and brings into existence what he has been promising to Abram for the past 24 years. And so this new name given to Abraham serves as a constant reminder that he belongs to God, that he is the patriarch of the promises, and that God has a specific calling for him to live within each and every day. And the second new thing that God invites in this text is a new relationship. A new relationship. You see, up until this point in the text, God has made promises to Abraham. And has walked with Abraham, blessing those who bless him and cursing those who curse him, Genesis 12, 13. But this was a reality strictly lived out by him, right? God was Abraham's God, 
Now listen to how this changes in our text today, verse 7 and 8. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you. Okay, that, we've heard this before, but look at how it continues. And your descendants after you for all the generations to come. To be your God, which we know, and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan, where you now reside as a foreigner, I will give you as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. Do you hear that? I will be your God, and I will be their God too. Right, church, that's new. In the same way that the original promise was expanded from one nation to many nations, God here tells Abraham that the special relationship that he has with God will be available for his descendants as well. The, The covenant up until this point that Abraham would have many descendants and those descendants would be given the land of Canaan, right? That's what the promise has been. But here, Abraham is affirmed in the most important thing. These descendants will not simply have the land promised to Abraham, but they will have God himself, which is so significant, church. Abraham trusted God that he would have offspring, but as many in the sanctuary here know, simply having kids is not the same thing as having kids who know God. Friends, the most important thing that I pray for my kids is that they would know God. It's more important than their job, than their comfort, than their future spouse, than grandchildren, than their health, or or whatever else I may be tempted to pray for. Their relationship with God is primary. Well, here, God tells Abraham that he will be the God of Abram's descendants. God will make himself available to them in the same way that he has made himself available to him. Right? Or in short, Abraham's descendants won't simply inherit an arrangement with God, but rather they will inherit a relationship with God. And that is very very different. And throughout our text and continuing on uh, throughout chapter 17, we see God establish a relational covenant outlining what it would look like for a certain people to be his special people through whom he would work in the world. And it starts off with the invitation in verse 1. Walk before me faithfully and be blameless. God says, here's what it looks like for you to live out a covenant relationship with me. You walk faithfully before me. Now, another way of saying this is obedience. This same expression, walking faithfully with God or before God, has been used throughout Genesis as a way of highlighting the few who follow the Lord in a world that doesn't. You remember in Genesis 5, 24, when we read about Enoch? What did it say? It said, Enoch walked faithfully with God. In Genesis 6, 9, we read the same about Noah. It said, everyone was sinful beyond repair, but Noah was a righteous man. 
blameless among the people of his time, and what? He walked faithfully with God. And here, God invites Abraham and his descendants to stand out in the world through obedience to him in the same way that Enoch and Noah had before them. Now, this is not an expectation that they will be perfect, right? And that if they sin, God will abandon his promises. Rather, it's a calling to be different than the world and that by their submission to God, they would stand out as he works in and through them. As the Old Testament later makes plain about God's calling for his people, you have been set apart as holy to the Lord your God. And he has chosen you from all the nations of the earth to be his own special treasure, Deuteronomy 14.2. Or Leviticus 20.26, you are to be holy to me because I, the Lord, am holy and I have set you apart from the nations to be my own. Or Deuteronomy 7.6, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his own possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. He's inviting them into a special, unique relationship and their part is to obey. Their part is to follow. And then after pointing out what their role would be in this covenant relationship, namely following and trusting in him, God outlines his end of the bargain of what it would look like for him to himself live among a certain people as his very own possession. He says, as you walk faithfully with me, I will walk faithfully with you. Look at verse 7 again. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come, to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. God promises his presence among them, leading them and enabling them to be the people that are set apart as holy and distinct in the world. And so the arrangement is that if Abraham's Abraham's people trust in God and obediently follow, that he would be with them and lead them. And as God leads them, he's asking them to obediently follow. That's the relationship that God is initiating. That is how they will live out their purpose as God's special people, to trust and be led by the holy God in their midst. It's how they will be blessed and be a blessing in the world, in the words of Genesis 12. Now, church, let's not forget who God is talking about. While it's easy to picture other Old Testament characters, you know, maybe trying to live this out, we need to remember that this is referring to all of Abraham's descendants. For, as verse 7 says, the generations to come. And do you remember what Paul said earlier? Through faith in Christ, Gentiles become descendants of Abraham. Church, that is you. That is me. Or anyone else who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. As Galatians 3.29 says, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. 
And so by this, Genesis 17 promised the expansion of the covenant, we inherit this new relationship, the presence of God among us. This goes from being Abraham's promise to being our promise. Friends, this is great news. Think about it. We can know and be known by the creator of all things. We can celebrate the promise and live in the truth that we are not alone, but that God is with us as he promised to our father in faith, Abraham. Think about that. Again, friends, I don't know what has been going on in your life over these past days, weeks, years, but the promise is clear for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are not alone. God is walking with you. What an encouragement that is for all of us. And the scriptures are not in short supply when it comes to unpacking the implications of this. As I said, I I don't know where each of us is at today, but I get the sense that there are some here who simply need to rest in the truth of of God's presence among us. And so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna read some scripture that speaks this truth. I just want you to be encouraged and ministered to by God's word and the truth of his constant presence in our lives. You can close your eyes if you want to, but I'm just going to read some scripture over you. And I just ask that you would internalize it and, and take it in as encouragement from our Lord. The word of God for you. Do not be terrified. Do not be discouraged. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31.6, the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Isaiah 41.10, do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you an advocate, the Holy Spirit, to help you and be with you forever. Psalm 139, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle at the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. Philippians 4, 5, simply, the Lord is near. Matthew 28, 20, Jesus says to his disciples, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Friends, the promise of God is his presence. And that is so much greater than the promise of land or a great name, or even a people. May we not forget, as we read two weeks ago in Genesis 15, that it is God himself who is the very great reward. And friends, that is something worth repeating. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you 
that you didn't just speak to Abraham once, but God, that you constantly spoke, that you walked with him, and that you have extended the promise to him all the way 4,000 years later to a place where we in Winnipeg, Manitoba can claim your truth and your presence. God, we know that that journey goes through a cross. We thank you for making a way for us to be your special people. Amen. Well, today, as we do on the first Sunday of every month, uh, we gather around the elements and celebrate the Lord's Supper together, remembering and thanking God for his sacrifice on the cross that brings us life and invites us to know him and come into his presence. And in uh, just a few moments, the worship team is going to lead us. And as that happens, I invite the rest of us to do a few things. First, if you do not have the elements, when the band or when the team plays, just raise your hand where you are and someone will bring them to you. If you're at home, you can gather some elements where you are and participate with us. Secondly, this is an opportunity to reflect personally on the gift of the cross and to thank God for his sacrifice that you might have life and that you might have him. And thirdly, this is a time for all of us to examine our own hearts. 1 Corinthians 11 says, Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. Now this does not mean that we need to be perfect to participate. But we are to lay down our pride, our judgment, our self-righteousness, coming before the Lord with a contrite and humble heart. For some, that may mean confession before the Lord where you are. For others, it may mean leaving where you are to reconcile with someone so that we can participate together without barriers between us as the people of God. So as our worship team leads, may we prepare our hearts to participate as a family, as the descendants of Abraham who can celebrate the gift of Emmanuel, God with us. Thanks for listening with us. For more information about our church or upcoming services and events, please visit us at grantmemorial.ca or on social media at at grantmemorialchurch.